Welcome to Series 3 of the Tim Hill Podcasts. In the last two series, I have told you about my life. I have met many interesting people along the way who have become my friends. And what they have in common is they all have fascinating stories of their own, which they are happy to share with you now. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Series 3, Episode 6 of the Tim Hill Podcasts. In this episode, I'm talking to Becky Walford. She spent 12 years with the Joint Services Adventurous Sail Training Centre in Gosport before moving on to the Queen's Harbour Master in Portsmouth. She has an absolutely fascinating story to tell. So sit back and enjoy. Over to you now, Becky. Okay, so my name's Becky Walford. I was born in Reading. However, my grandfather had a farm, and in times to come, my father took over the farm, and I spent all my early years and my teenage years in the middle of the Somerset Levels. We had a, we have a 350-acre mixed farm on a fairly low-lying countryside that is currently flooded, which is fairly normal for this time of year. Um, and as a teenager, I spent a lot of time in the fields working the farm in the summer, driving tractors, loving the outdoor life. And I have a, a brother and sister. And between us, we all uh, we all supported the family and made the farm work. And for schooling, uh, I was educated at my uh, local primary school. And then in my, in my secondary education, I went to a private school also in Somerset, uh, which was very keen on sport. And being asthmatic, I can't really do running. Uh, or any sort of thing, unless it's for the for the bus last minute. But uh, I developed a love of sailing, which came from my father's side, primarily. And um, we were able to go sailing through school, being thrown in a fairly vintage dinghy in all types of weather, and an inland pond. And I thought, I quite like this, which led me on to uh, forming RYA qualifications and stepping into the RYA cruising scheme, um, which then... I thought, well, I quite like this sailing game. As much as I love agriculture, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit allergic to animals on the farm. And when I go sailing, I, I'm fairly health-free of um, things that make me wheeze and sneeze. So that was really how sailing took off. And I took a, a three-year course at Southampton Institute in the marine industry management and played with boats ever since, really. And uh, hence really started my relationship with sailing in the Solent. So... Uh, I spent time working in the marine industry and uh, realised that I still wanted to go sailing for pleasure. But then I was given a very good opportunity with Robin Notch Johnson's Clip Adventures down in Plymouth, which was really my big door opener. I spent three months refitting the then Clipper 60 fleet. And uh, after the refit, they said, we're short of first mates, Becky. We know you've got a coastal skipper certificate why don't you come and sail as first mate? Which which I was overly delighted to take part in, and my learning curve was fairly steep. I had a huge amount of experience racing yachts in the Solent, but I had very little experience of racing or sailing 60-foot yachts, but got my head around it fairly quickly and spent the summer of 1998 training all these people to go racing and even did some sailing with the now very famous Alex Thompson, and that was my huge great stepping stone in commercial sailing and at the end of it got my yacht master and at the following year I ended up running a fleet for Clipper while the race boats were going around the world so that was my uh, my first job so to speak in sailing. 
So how long did you actually work for the Clipper? So I worked for Clipper from 98 till 2002 full-time, which was great. We did some really good stuff, um, mostly sailing their relatively small fleet of 38-foot yachts along the south coast, doing lots of corporate charter and racing. But I also became a relief skipper for the big boat fleet and was involved with the commissioning of the 68s and uh, worked for them freelance for a few years um, when there was a little gap in my needs. And uh, during that time, I took my Yachtmaster instructor certificate and uh, did some instructing for other schools around the UK, got some blue water miles in and uh, carried on. And then, and then I saw the job at Joint Services advertised. And I thought, oh, I've always liked those Nicholsons. And uh, earlier in the year, I'd been tied up in Plymouth with a clipper boat alongside a Joint Services boat that was fresh out of refit. And I thought, oh, I quite like this. I like this idea of working with the forces. So that would have been 2005. So uh, 2005, I, uh, <laughs> I started at Joint Services, which was, uh, which was um, yeah, amazing. I was fairly, fairly green for the first six months, not really understanding all the forces twang and uh, all the acronyms that went with it. But after a while, <laughs> I got my head around it and then uh, had some good time sailing with a wide variety of skippers who were all ex-forces, learning how they ran their ship. And I think by the time I had my skipper's assessment, to combine the skills I had having driven vessels for clipper ventures all over the world and and how joint services did things, I think I brought an element of fresh air to the organisation, which would have been ooh, late, late 2005, I think I took my skipper's ticket. And then the door was wide open and I was fortunate enough to go all over the world with joint services for all those years. A bit about joint services. Joint services are um, one of the world's, if not the world's largest sail training centre, definitely the UK's, uh, running a sizeable fleet, which I believe is up to the best part of 35, 40 boats now. Um, and the primary objective of the centre is to develop personnel qualities of the armed forces through an offshore sailing environment. And the amazing thing it did was, or does, is puts a whole wide range of people into a small space, shakes them up a bit, and then they learn life skills. And along with life skills, they learn quite often how to sail. So the, the centre does everything in the RAA cruising scheme, from comp crew all the way up to yacht master ocean. And my primary remit was driving the large vessels. So at the time, we had uh, five Nicholsons tied to the dock on day one and uh, four Channel 67s. And the five Nicholsons basically stayed in Europe and uh, the 67s went global. And the, the, the Nicholsons were famous because uh, the original one, Adventure, had won, had done the first Whitbread now Volvo race um, and uh, brought the Navy to, into light and the Army took one round the world in a later Volvo race. So it was a, a quite a historic piece of kit to sail. Certainly when you sailed in Europe and you find yourself in the back end of Greece in some island with... 11 squaddies that hadn't washed for a week because um, the only washing they could do was swimming because a nickel suit is fairly basic. Um, and a lovely gentleman would come down the dock who was ex-forces and say, oh, I sailed on that boat in 1963 or 1973 or 1983 or 1993. We know you haven't got a shower. Would you like to come into my house for a, for a drink and a shower? Which, strangely enough, the squaddies and the rest of us loved. So, uh it was, it was quite an honour to drive those vessels. The, not being white, most of them were blue or red. It was uh, good because you just weren't that big white boat on the end of the dock. But we visited places from um, 
well, where did we go? We went in the Baltic, we went, didn't go to St. Petersburg, but nearly. We went to Tallinn, we went to Greece, we went to uh, Cyprus, we went to Italy, we went to Spain, went to Croatia, went all over the place with them. But we also used to send one down to the Canaries for the winter. So we'd have two weeks at least, if not more, uh, sailing a boat around the Canaries, which was which was a great programme because it was fairly windy. A lot of people signed up thinking they were going to have a two-week drinking holiday, but actually realised that they were going to learn how to sail <laughs> and uh, learn how to cook at a jaunty angle. And quite often some fairly sporty winds that you get in the acceleration zones. They'd go back to work, hopefully learn a few things, and then perhaps later on would come and join us again, or they'd get some certification themselves and potentially work their way up through the RIA scheme using the small boats. And then we had the challenge boats. We have four challenge 67s, which were fantastic, or still are a fantastic boat, designed to go around the world the wrong way with, by Che uh, Bly's clients. And uh, being the forces, we didn't like to make things too difficult, so we tended to go around the world with the wind. And in uh, 2009, stroke 10, we sailed three of them um, around the globe over, I think it was over about a year or so, with various legs from two weeks to six weeks. And we... Um, we visited, I think, uh, Canaries, Rio, Cape Town, Sydney, Auckland, um, and then we came up the east coast of South America and into North America and home. And that was in the days when the forces had a bit more time and one boat was fully crewed by the RAF, one boat was fully crewed by the Army and another boat was fully crewed by the Navy. And I was very lucky to take the RAF from Rio to Cape Town on a fantastic trip with the wind behind us in two iconic cities at either end with a, quite an entertaining crew. And then I also picked up the same boat, which had been sailed by another colleague to Sydney by now, and we raced it in the Sydney Hobart race in 2009 in Sydney with the RAF and uh, there was a lot of banter on the dock about how the Navy were always going to win and the Army were going to win and I was very delighted to say after a fairly tough race of of light wins um, we beat the uh, Navy by some considerable margin and we also beat the Army by a considerable margin and on New Year's Day I was very proud to stand on the plinth in the Royal Hobart Yacht Club or the Royal Tasman Cruising Club of Tasmania, I can't remember, you'd have to look that up, and accepted a trophy on behalf of my crew for being the first forces boat home and also first female skipper. So that was a, a hairs on the back of the neck, a very proud moment, which will stay with me for some time. And then I was fortunate enough to, instead of coming home, I thought, well, I might as well go to New Zealand. I'm taking picking the next boat up in New Zealand. So I flew to New Zealand, had two weeks leave in New Zealand, and then joined the army vessel, Challenger, picked her up in Auckland, and a completely different crew from the RAF crew, who we'd sailed together and we'd formed a team, and we'd all done quite a lot of sailing and racing, whereas this army lads walked down the dock, they'd done three days sailing before stepping on a 67-foot yacht to sail best part of 7,000 miles from Auckland to Cape Horn. By the time we left our mass with the other two vessels, we had a few a few hiccups along the way with um, certification and what have you. But we all left our mass in, uh, in uh, early February and we set off for Montevideo, Punta del Este, and uh, we were in convoy with the other two, which was great to know. And most days we'd have a chat or a quiz or just have a chinwag, see how we were and who caught the biggest fish and all that sort of stuff. However, after about a week, 
we were doing our morning dawn patrol and having a look around and noticed that our marsh track had started to peel off. So after much faffing and ado and head scratching, I concluded it could not be fixed at sea in the Southern Ocean. And uh, there was nowhere to go and a duty of care. So we turned back to Wellington and spent a couple of days in Wellington and had our marsh track fixed and uh, replenished and what have you. So we set off again two weeks later than our other two sister ships and sailed all the way to uh, Falklands. And we went to the Falklands because time was running out. However, on our way to the Falklands, about, I don't know, 200 miles west of Cape Horn, in some, we picked up a fairly sizable weather forecast that would make the hairs on anybody's neck stand up, which included winds to 90 knots. We had a fairly exciting 36 hours, which included... Um, Numerous times of the mast uh, going into the water and the angle of vanishing stability reached a fairly sizable 20-metre tall wave, damaged the rig, it damaged the steering, it wiped a whole load of safety kit off the back of the boat. And when the rig went, when we went over, we flattened the stanchions, the life jackets went off, all the contents of the bookshelf ended up in the freezer. I won't eat porridge to this day. Rice krispies all over the roof. Everybody's sleeping bags were wet. But because these were infantry lads, they were absolutely brilliant. They dug in. They didn't realise how bad it was, which was a blessing. Those of us that did were <laughs> gathering grey hairs as we walked around the deck. But the infantry lads were just brilliant. They did absolutely everything I asked them to. And uh, to give our Perkins M135 its absolute credit, it started first time, having been thrown on its side, I think at least four times. Uh, and it ran without missing a beat all the way to the Falklands. We whacked a new set of uh, filters on the generator, which uh, promptly ran all the way to the Falklands. And uh, we decided that having taken all the sails down apart from the storm staysail for our little hurricane experience, we had no need to put them back up. So we uh, we turned them up in the we turned up in the Falklands, and the girl on the end of the pontoon said, "You're late." And I was like, "Oh, that's a nice greeting." And then she said, "Can you wear a life jacket when you're on the pontoon?" <laughs> I'll never forget it, because I, I stepped off the pontoon, avoiding a rather large hole, and walked up the gangway and said, I think I'll manage that risk. I've just sailed however many thousand miles and uh, went up into the port operations room to be met by a whole load of people in suits and army kit <laughs> and, uh, who were suitably worried about us, which was nice to know. But all we wanted to know is if we had a warm bed, preferably dry, and a hot shower in the in the base further up the road, which I'd visited on a previous occasion, so I knew my way around because I'd been fortunate enough to take one of the 67s down to South Georgia about two years beforehand, so I knew what I was letting myself in for. The guy who was running the meeting said yes, at which point I ran out, gave everybody a big thumbs up. <laughs> they all went to the base. We all collected our stuff, and the naval engineering unit in the Falkland set about fixing the boat, which was uh, quite an achievement. And uh, they used a huge amount of stuff off the scrap heap in the Falklands, and she became known as Scrap Heap Challenger based on the on the TV series. And then uh, somebody else took her away from the Falklands, and then I, ironically, I met up with her in um, in Charleston, and we sailed. I sailed with an Army aircraft crew up to Boston. And that was a uh, that was quite a tough trip emotionally, not so much weather wise, but it was quite hard getting back on the same boat. So we got back on the saddle and uh, and carried on. So I did twelve and a half years at Joint Services which was, um, I think, probably more than half my working life so far. So what were some of your highlights with working with the joint services? Oh, that's a question. I think, I think I can look at, I can put it in two halves. I can say some of the sailing was just amazing. So to sail down to South Georgia and seeing that as a landfall, 
was amazing. And then spending a day playing with icebergs in uh, Greenland, where we sort of decided to try and tie up to an iceberg, which wasn't very successful. And then the others decided to put dry suits on and slide down icebergs to uh, land in the water, which we hooked them out. Um, and then I look at the things like the trade wind sailing across the Atlantic. We took 67 across the Atlantic for days. It was a full moon, spinnaker up, 20 knots behind us. And the boat was just absolutely trucking along. Um, and the sailing in the Caribbean was quite nice. It was windy. The boat liked it. But then the sailing was the easy bit. It was the people management because you put these 12 or 14 people in this tin and this hot tin thing, especially in the tropics, and you'd never put these people in, in a walk of life together. And then they'd have to cook, they'd have to clean in a really small galley. And Mother Watch would take three hours to do the washing up. And then, oh, we need a dishwasher. Well, we haven't got a dishwasher. We haven't got a washing machine. But you've got a microwave. Yeah, but think about how we're going to make all the water. And it was that expectation management. But I'll never forget one lad who, who was a ginger-haired gentleman who joined us in... Uh, Tenerife, having been told that he could go to the Caribbean, not exactly appreciating that it would be at least two to three weeks to get there. He thought he was on some cruise ship. And uh, he was an absolute character. His uh, line manager struggled to call him non-ginger words. I think he settled on African sunset. And uh, he got to the other end, and him and his mate decided that they would go and find the ladies of the night in St Lucia because they hadn't spent any money for three weeks and they loved it. And the following day they appeared on the boat looking a bit sorry for themselves. But to give him his credit, four or five years later, he came up to me and he said, oh, you're Becky, you're on the mic. Yeah, he said, oh, you might remember me, I'm African Sunset. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember you. And he went to stop there and he said, I've come to apologise. I'm like, oh, what's happened? I've come to apologise about my appalling behaviour at the end of the leg. I'm now a married man with two kids and I'm doing my coastal skipper this week. And I thought... Actually, you know what? If nothing happens, he's learned a huge amount about life and he can, he can dig back to that. And that's, I think, essentially why the Sailing Centre operates. And all those life lessons that you can't put your finger on when they're on that sail training vessel with 10 people, in times to come, they can say, oh, yeah, I learned how to peel this onion when I was doing a leg up the Canaries with Becky. Or, yeah, she did a really good chilli. Or, no, 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 we don't cook. We don't cook potatoes in the kettle. We put them in a pan first. And, it, and oh, yeah, your man who cut his leg, he's got a big scar, but I just still call him one leg and there's years to come. And, it's, and I think for me also, being accepted into that forces world as a complete civilian, let alone female civilian, into the Joint Service Sailing Centre. I broke the mould because they hadn't taken a civilian on and they hadn't taken a female on, and she was driving the big boats, was was actually an honour. And to go to people's leaving parties and to be able to talk to people in that forces environment, something I'd never even dreamed of when I, I started, the, started the role. But I just love the boats and I love the sailing, and I'm very, very lucky to have done some really cool stuff when I'm surrounded by memories of that that goes with it. Do you ever get the chance to go out on the Victoria 34s or is it just the big boats that you concentrate on? To keep our skills and drills up, we um, we did at least one or two trips a week on a Vic a year. And I remember coming back one one year and saying to the then training officer, please can I have a week, a week on a Vic? And he's like, why? He said, because when you sell a Vic, everything's so easy. It doesn't need 12 people to pull the mainsail up. And you could just pull the main in and you could just put the anchor down. 
So I used to love going and doing a day skipper course on the VIX, just sailing around the Solent in your backyard, easy sailing, didn't have to go out at night, didn't have to go out the sight of land. And if we ran out of food, we could go and get some. And uh, yeah, it was great. And the VIX are really great training boats with hanked on head sails. It's all mandrolic, so you have to pull the anchor up, you have to pull the sails up, you have to pull them in, you have to pump the heads. You don't have to pump the sink in the galley, which is unlike the challenge boats, but... Yeah, they're great. Really, really great. And again, seeing people starting off as day skippers and then coming back on the Nicholsons as a watch leader and then perhaps come back in years to come and you end up examining them for their yacht master. And you think you guys are just complete product of, of forces sailing and you're going to take this and you're going to use it all over the world. And the Vicks are really, really good for that. A little bit, little bit basic inside, but they do have the biggest chart table on a 34-footer anywhere full-size chart table, which I think is something to be proud of. I think the RWA called them the slugs for a very long time, <laughs> but they're great. We also have some fond memories of the Victoria 34s. That's where I started my sailing career with the Army on the Vic 34s. But then I moved up to uh, into Germany and spent a lot of time sailing out of Kiel on the Helberg Rassies. And I even own a Helberg Rassie myself nowadays, so my sailing career has gone from the old rough and ready Victoria 34s to the really plush end of the market with the Helberg Rassie. Yeah, well, of course, Joint Services have got Helberg Rassies now. They uh, ended up with the Helberg Rassies from Kiel. And I think that's that's really good for the centre because one thing that it does is it gives you a different type of boat to sail on. Otherwise, you get very stuck on sailing a Victoria 34, but with the ability to sail a Helberg Rassie, which is a different set of characteristics... And uh, both good in all different ways. It just gives the gives the client base a little bit more experience and uh, different different things to do. Did you ever sail out of the British Kill Yacht Club before it closed down? Yeah, it's a cracking spot. That that's a cracking spot. It's a shame it's gone, but the waters around Kiel are fantastic. They're so flat and there's so much to see, and there's people there are so welcoming. So I, I realised after a few trips that I perhaps didn't need to get concussion in the middle of the Atlantic anymore having been sat down by the bishop in the forepeak, he said, Becky, you need to find another job. But what I didn't want to do was rush away from defence because I like the defence thing and I like the family that it provides you. And so I was very lucky. I found a job with the Queen's Harbour Master Department in Portsmouth. So it enabled me to stay local to Gosport so I didn't have to move. And they wanted somebody that had a huge amount of experience with leisure vessels and had some training behind them and was happy to stand up and talk to people basically they had a new post they weren't really too sure how it was going to pan out when they advertised it three years ago but they got me very happily I think have me a job title of uh, port safety and boat patrol so in the summer I spend three days a week on the water with a with a 22 foot rib with Queen's Harbour Master written on the side and if needs be we have a blue flashing light and a two-tone siren and we engage with a huge amount of the public that might need a little bit of education about uh, speed awareness or uh, how much wash they're creating or just their effect on others. So the guy that's towing his water ski through the people that are swimming in Osborne Bay gets frowned upon. The guy that's doing 30 knots off the beach at South Sea on his jet ski, he and I have a little chat. And then we keep an eye on all the guys that might be out there doing a yacht race or around the island or the Royal Southern Regattas. 
because I'm responsible for making sure that all the risk assessments are seen for that. And we have a huge, great database that uh, all their calendars form into. And then if something needs to be broadcast, we can form a notice to mariners. But also I do the traffic management for the uh, small vessels under 20 metres for when the uh, Queen Elizabeth class carriers go in and out of the harbour, because that's a fairly sizable manoeuvre for our team. With a, with a couple of admiralty pilots, a huge amount of tugs, and we shut the harbour for when uh, a carrier moves in or out. And sometimes if uh, they're winding ship as well. But So I'm on the water for doing that. And when I'm not on the water, I'm either working from home or in the office, which is in the dockyard, keeping an eye on things. And the trend at the moment seems to be boats break, breaking free from moorings. It's a time of year that we have to deal with that. Sort of keeping an eye on the leisure use, really, but also doing a few Zoom presentations when normally I'd be out in a yacht club at this time of year, spreading the good word about what we do. Because at the end of the day, we're all people at the QHM and we love talking to others and we want you to be safe in our dockyard port, which is 55 square miles of the Eastern Solent. So our border, it's quite a long word, the big word, that border goes up to Hillhead. And then there's a dotted line that goes across the chart to Old Castle Point in Cowes. And then our neighbours to the west is Southampton and Cowes. And then our remit down to the uh, south and east goes into Sandown Bay, out at right angles, inside the Lab Tower, and then across the entrance to Langston Harbour. So we're 55 square miles, if you include Portsmouth Harbour itself. We let Southampton manage the traffic that comes through the Solent because otherwise it gets a bit complicated with uh, handing vessels in and out of uh, harbour authority areas. So we provide a vessel traffic service from Outer Spitboy, which is uh, about a mile and a half, two miles from the entrance to Portsmouth Harbour for the traffic going into the harbour. And uh, even people say, oh, you're just, just Portsmouth. But we're actually the second busiest port in the UK to Dover in non-COVID times because we have the White Link ferries uh, leaving from various parts of the harbour going to the Isle of Wight and of course we have the Brittany ferries and the Commodore Clippers that go to Cross Channel or Channel Islands and then we've got the commercial traffic on top of all the <laughs> warship traffic <laughs> so all the Ministry of Defence uh, and vessels that come in and out are all our problem as well and my colleagues in the pilotage team step on board and bring them in safely so there's a huge amount going on in our uh, in our patch so do you have anything to do with the pilot boats that run out of Fort Blockhouse or do you have your own pilot boats and what's your role for the pilot boats oh yeah pilot boats so we've got two pilot boats Southern Racer and Southern Spirit and sometimes if something's going on I'll go out with one of the pilots I've yet to do a, a move in I've done a few wines, which has been interesting when they've taken the ships out of locks and put them on walls. But it's fascinating when you see a, a, a pilot climbing up the ladder of a, of a Type 45 or, or the carrier sometimes and then uh, bring the ship in. And I was fortunate enough to go out on a Type 23 on uh, one of the forces days a couple of years ago when uh, I was able to see the pilot actually doing his job on the bridge, which was really, really good to see that side of the organisation. Oh, man, oh, yeah, I'd love to become a pilot, but unfortunately I'm not qualified because uh, I, as much as I have a, a Yachtmaster commercial, uh, with all that goes with to do the job I did at Joint Services, unfortunately I don't have any STCW Masters 3000 or above uh, qualifications, which is understandably what you need to um, pilot one of those vessels in. 
but it's good to be involved with it and have an understanding and appreciation to how important it is. I'd be more than happy to, to talk to you guys again. Just stay safe. And if you've ever got any questions for QHM, either email us or contact us and we'd, we'd happily answer them. Well, your work sounds fascinating. Do you ever do tours at all for groups? Say, if I could get arrange for Horning Services Sailing Club to come over to the Queen's Harbour Master at some stage in the future, once this pandemic is over, to give us a guided tour of what you do and how it's done? Yeah, I think I'm actually toying with the idea to see if we can do a virtual visit and put it on a clip online. But where we are with COVID at the moment, the uh, the team in Harbour Control have lost one person out of their watch to keep their uh, team safe. So with people isolating, they need to build some redundancy in. So I've seen, I think in the last six months or eight months, I've seen, I think if I add up all the times I've seen my colleagues for more than a day, it's probably about 10, majoritively remote working to try and keep everybody safe. Yeah, and I think there's great great news with with all the vaccines that are coming out. And I think that'll be a huge step once we get the vaccines and that'll ease the pressure on, uh, on the health services. So what have been the highlights of your time with the Queen's Harbour Master in Portsmouth? What, my highlights of QHM? Oh, wow. Um, I think QHM's rib, which is um, the one with the blues and twos, I think is to actually sit there and direct traffic when when an aircraft carrier comes in. Driving around at 30 knots in the main channel to go and deal with something, as much as it's painful, is actually quite a privilege. Um, we, We do get people deciding they want to come and look at the carrier on their paddle boards and they want to paddle in from the hot walls um, just at the wrong moment. And uh, to be sent across the bows of the carrier to go and deal with that is, is, is a huge privilege. It also can be quite a, a scary moment. I have a very good co-pilot at the moment, which is, uh, which is good. So the deal is I do the talking, he does the driving. I had to go and talk to somebody who'd done something similar coming out of Hasler Creek and tried to cut the carrier up, and the police had sent me in to go and talk to somebody. So sort of squeezing through the six-metre gap between the, the carrier and Fort Blockhouse was a little bit of a, oh, but we can do this quickly moment, and uh, that was great. And I think if we are able to take visitors up into Harbour Control to be able to stand up on the fifth floor and look all the way across the harbour is absolutely a stunning view absolutely stunning and you look right down the channel right up the harbour right across over gosport absolutely amazing and then uh, to stand up there on that bridge of the type 23 i think it was hms st albans on the family's day next to the captain and the between the captain and the pilot and say this is good i quite like this (laughs) so as as much as i do miss elements of sail training and and taking members of the armed forces sailing i still get that fixed by uh, doing a bit of volunteering for sea cadets on the good ship royalist and also uh, doing a bit of examining for various schools so I, I, I still get my fix from that so i feel now my my offshore sailing wellies were a little bit thin on the ground on the soles and uh, i'm able to get the best of both worlds now well that sounds like an amazing career so far i'd just like to give you a big thank you hope you found that very interesting i did If you did, please like, share and subscribe. By subscribing, you won't miss another episode. My episodes are released at 6 o'clock Greenwich Mean Time on a Sunday morning. So if you don't subscribe, log in on a Sunday morning to get the latest episode. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 